1: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show, a special episode of The Ezra Klein Show. By popular demand, we're doing an Ask Me Anything episode. Uh, A bunch of you have sent in great questions. You put them on the Facebook. You have gotten them to me by Carrier Pigeon. And I have asked friend of the show, Grant Gordon, to come in and ask them, so I'm not sitting here talking to myself for, for an hour and a half. Grant, you guys remember, was on a past episode. He does humanitarian work, works at the International Rescue Committee, and is also an old friend of mine who can call me on my shit and make sure I don't completely dodge all of the hard and good questions here. So at this point, welcome, Grant. I'm turning it over to you.
1: Fantastic. Thank this you. feels real no, weird. It's nothing. like driving in the backseat of your own car. <laughs> nothing will be dodged here. <laughs> nothing will be dodged. All right, we're just going to hop into it and start with Halia's question, um, which is a two-prong question, and you can feel free to select either prong. In the context of longer-life expectancies... Is there such a thing as to live too old? And if so, how old is too old? And how does the society make that determination? Alternatively, <laughs> what's the best concert you've ever been to? <laughs> I'm going to answer these in reverse order. So best
2: concert, oh man, best concert I've been to that I'm willing to say I have been to. Is probably the a Maiden Heights Toki Monster concert I saw two years ago in DC at the Rock and Roll Hotel, which was awesome. Uh, if you get a chance to see Toki Monster live, you should do it. As for the other much harder question, <laughs> so I think there are a couple ways to take that. One is within the slightly more conceptual question of is there an abstract value in a compressed life expectancy, right? There's a set of philosophical arguments about how life is given its meaning by its finiteness. I do not buy those arguments. Uh, There's a good post by a writer named Julie Galiff, who also has a good podcast about arguments about whether or not we should try to live forever. And she quoted someone, and I don't remember who it is, but saying, the implications of this discussion are, are, are hard to figure out, and I'd like to have three or 400 years to work through them, <laughs> which is definitely where I come down. Uh, yeah, so the
1: Climb podcast lives
2: forever. So then there's this other question about resources and money, right? And the only thing I'll say on that, because I don't really have a great way to, to value that, but I don't think there is a too long. But I think there are interesting questions about too unhealthy. I think when people think about life expectancy, they find it easy to think about mortality and harder to think about morbidity. Mm -hmm. The fascinating piece that Zeke Emanuel published in The Atlantic a couple years ago now, and Zeke is a doctor, he's a bioethicist, he's been an oncologist, he was one of the architects of Obamacare. But he argues in that piece, I'm not sure I fully believe him, but, but he argues in that piece that he wants to die at 75. And the reason he wants to die at 75, and, and he doesn't literally mean exactly at 75, but he wants to begin refusing medical treatment after that point, is that in his view, what we have done is we have expanded mortality quite a bit, but we have not expanded morbidity as much, which is to say or, or caught or cut thought morbidity as well, which is to say that people live longer, but they often are very unhealthy, very disabled, very unhappy towards the end of their lives. And so I think that as you think about what it means to live well longer, we probably have to be doing more thinking about the well part of that, not just about the
1: longer part of that. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. I think it's it's I think you see this with this generation grandparents' parents are living longer but living quite unhealthy lives. And uh, uh, it's just a really big challenge to navigate in how you kind of allocate resources to those two things um, and how you actually improve life quality. And how do you actually orient your sciences to be doing that at the same time, right? Like the sciences have advanced farther in extending life than they have in actually improving the quality of life at this point.
2: Right. So here, here's a big hope. Venture capitalist Peter Thiel is exercising a lot of input, apparently, over who Donald Trump picks for FDA, for National Institutes of Health, for a bunch of key positions. Peter Thiel, to my knowledge, does not have a ton of interest in the healthcare sector as we normally think about it. He's done some investing there. But my understanding of what moves him is immortality. (laughs) His desire to live forever. (laughs) Which I share. So um, one unexpected but potentially pretty great outcome would be if Peter Thiel manages to install the right people who fund the right moonshot projects and lead to us all living until 200 years old, pretty healthy lives. If that happens, I will be willing to say that Donald Trump and Peter Thiel have made America great again.
1: Donald Trump, make America great. Live forever. (laughs) All right, we're going to take you to Trevor's question, which gets to a lot of the thinking and work that you have done around universal basic income and that folks at Vox have. And Trevor says... Per your request, I'm wondering if you can weigh in on universal basic income. What are the things that you dislike or like about it? What do you think about its feasibility, its effectiveness? What are the kind of some of the underlying characteristics and that shape how you feel about it? So I exist at the epicenter of a lot of
2: universal basic income obsession. Uh, my wife, Annie Lowry, who's an amazing writer, is doing a huge project on this. And her work on it is really, really interesting. My writer and good friend, Dylan Matthews, has been a long time obsessive in this space, I think it is fair to say. He's been very interested by this for a long time. And I, so I enjoy thinking about it. I enjoy talking about it. I don't at this juncture for developed countries. And I want to be very careful about that. There's a very different set of arguments around developing and even middle income countries. But for a developed country like America, I am not persuaded that we have a culture that could come anywhere near supporting a universal basic income right now. So this is, I think, the part that people don't give enough credence to when they, when they consider universal basic incomes. I would be very concerned about getting into a, a situation, even if you could afford it, where people actually using their universal basic income, people existing off of it, were considered like folks on welfare were in in the early 90s, where they become a, a sort of underclass in society where they're looked down on, where they are continuously hit by politicians looking to pick up a couple votes, where the actual universal basic income itself is unendingly tenuous because it's unpopular. Folks who are working are upset about their tax dollars going to subsidize those who are not working. And so so that to me is the argument I want to hear people considering a lot more around a universal basic income. There's the the arithmetic of it, the how do you fund it? And, and that's tough. I, I think it's often a lot tougher than people give it credit for. But what is much more important and what's much more difficult, I think, is the culture around it. How do you create a political consensus that is really a sharp distinction from where we've been before where we no longer believe that if you are not working, you know, this is for working age adults, right? People feel differently about folks who are at retirement age, that if you are not working, we are willing to give you respect. We are willing to treat you with dignity. If you don't have that, then I think creating a policy that pulls people out of the workforce could be a pretty bad idea. Two other points on this that that I think are worth making. One is that I'm a lot less convinced by automation arguments than other people seem to be right now. There's the Silicon Valley universal basic income argument, which would be very interesting if it came true. But there is just no evidence at this point of job losses from automation that are going to push structural unemployment up to 12% to say nothing of 82% or 54%. There's a sort of existence in a sci-fi world, which if we start going there, we can make decisions about. But before we ever got to a fifth of the population being out of work because of machines, we'd get to 12% 12% of it and or 10% of it, and we're we're just not there. We're just not seeing the kinds of displacement or productivity gains that would make us think that we were headed there in any, with any kind of speed. So I don't quite understand the urgency you see the, around this from Silicon Valley folks. Uh, it feels to me like they are much more confident about the way they are reshaping the economy than the actual data would tell you. The second thing is that I think that there is a conversational move around universal basic income that is pretty overdone, which is to say that a lot of different people have supported a lot of different policies that are mutually exclusive and in fact are attempting to achieve perfectly opposite aims and call them universal basic incomes. And so there will be this tendency to say, well, a universal basic income has been supported by the left and by the right, by by Charles Murray at the American Enterprise Institute and by Martin Luther King Jr. and. There is a sense in which that is true. They have both supported things that can be called a universal basic income. But but a lot of the support for it on the right is an argument for dissolving the majority or the entirety of the social safety net and converting it into a universal basic income. And and to give an example, Murray's plan, which I think is the leading one on the right so far as any of them are leading on the right – the way it really works is you dissolve the safety net so you don't have things like Medicaid. Then you make people buy health insurance and then you make the universal basic income rise at a level slower than the cost of health care. And so over time, people are getting less and less and less covered. But even putting aside the technical features of his plan, there is just a really big difference between wanting to use a universal basic income to replace what the government does now as he does and wanting to use it to expand what the government does now, which is what, say, somebody like Andy Stern wants to do. And I'd be pretty uncomfortable with a world where we said, you get a universal basic income, but if you've spent too much of it or you have made bad decisions or maybe you're a kid and your parents have made bad decisions and you get sick, we're just going to do nothing for you. I think there's a lot of very different views about what happens in that world that make this sort of argument around a left-right coalition on this pretty weak.
1: I want to take you back to your first point there around kind of the required shift in culture and kind of ask ask you what that means and kind of push you on where that comes from, right? So I think right now you think it's unsustainable that we could implement this type of policy architecture and not generate the type of underclass that you're concerned that welfare may have done and really not have this type of supporting landscape to, to make this work. So given your focus on politics and policy what do you think actually are the government levers that can be pulled in your opinion to change these elements that can help shift towards that equilibrium right like how do you actually get to that place and where's the role of policy there so
2: so one i'm not sure we can and and two i and i don't mean this as a to, to suggest i'm sure we shouldn't i'm not sure we should so let, let me give an example here. Sarah Cliff, who's my co-host on The Weeds and just one of the best journalists alive today, she did this great story where she went to a Kentucky county that has seen a really sharp drop in uninsurance under Obamacare. Their uninsured rate has gone from 25% to 10, but voted for Trump. And so she went there and, and talked to Volkswagen and said, look, you're you're on Obamacare. Trump wants to repeal Obamacare. Why did you vote for him? One of the really interesting conversations she had was with a woman who's actually an Obamacare enrollment counselor. This woman has herself enrolled thousands of people for the program. She thinks the program is good and she voted for Trump. And there's complicated reasons she voted for Trump. But one of the things she says is that she is upset by the fact that poor people in the county, people who don't work, get Medicaid. And Medicaid has very low or no co-pays. It is very low or no cost sharing. It's a much more expansive form of insurance than the working poor who are getting some Obamacare subsidies but still have to buy private insurance on the exchanges are getting. So she's pissed off that people who don't work are getting better and more fully subsidized insurance than people who do. And so one result of that pissed offness was to vote for someone who may well repeal a program that she has been supporting, working for, and thinks is overall a good thing. And there has always been this cleavage in in American government. I mean, I've read a lot of these sort of histories of American poverty and poverty policy things. And the thing that they really emphasize is how much from the beginning we have always as a society, as a culture, as a country – Divided the poor into the deserving poor and the non-deserving poor and, and the deserving poor work and they're trying and they're doing 40-hour weeks and all the rest of it. And, and the non-deserving poor, and I'm not endorsing these ideas, I'm just stating that they're there, you know, are the folks who don't. And this is very prevalent. Uh, if you went to Bernie Sanders' website during the campaign, you got a splash page and the splash page said, no American who works 40 hours a week should live in poverty. That is a very different concept than no American should live in poverty, whether or not they want to work. Mm -hmm. The question of can the government get us there, I am not persuaded the government actually has levers to change culture like that. I mean, even look at how poorly the government was able to change culture around Obamacare. I think things could get us there. So if Silicon Valley turned out to be right and there was an explosion in automation due to generalized artificial intelligence – And in the next 10 years, we went to a structural unemployment rate of 40 percent. Yeah, I think culture would change really quick. I think people change and cultures change in response to really dramatic differences in the world around them. I think that is something that happens. I think it would have been unimaginably rude to act the way we do on smartphones 15 years ago. But now everybody has a smartphone. Everybody wants to do that. So we're (laughs) all like, oh, I guess you've stopped listening to me. I'll just stop listening to you, too, and it'll be fine. And that's how you get to a new cultural equilibrium. Exactly. But – can the government do that? I'm not sure. Then there's this other question of, would it be desirable? And this is just really fucking hard, I think. I don't know the answer. I had a really interesting conversation piloting this podcast out through the weeds. I interviewed Arthur Brooks, head of the American Enterprise Institute, who's a thoughtful guy, a conservative guy. And we had a, a debate about whether or not work should be the bedrock of dignity, whether or not in a rich country we should make it easier for people maybe not to work. Maybe you shouldn't have to in the richest country the world has ever known work in a a shitty job, he really disagreed. And he cited a lot of evidence that people are just happier when they're working. Now, maybe that's, again, cultural. Maybe that is the difference between there's fascinating research showing that when people who are long-term unemployed hit retirement age, they become happier simply because they have shifted their category from unemployed to retired. Mm -hmm. So maybe the reason people are happier is that we just do not have the right culture to not be working in this country. But Maybe not, right? Maybe there are things about the social contact it gives you, the sense of purpose it gives you that is different. And and something that he argued, which was interesting to me, was that you do not see differences in work happiness at different levels of education. I sort of made the argument that, look, that may be good for you and me, Arthur. Like, we have these nice desk jobs and sit around doing work we're interested in. But if you're a greeter at Walmart or something, maybe you don't feel that way being on your feet all day. And his read of the evidence, which he he knows this literature better than I do, was that you do not actually see that in the data. And I think if you listen to people, that people experience the loss of work as a really deep load, their dignity and their routine. People who are at home all the time, there, there can be a sort of utopian idea of universal basic income world where everybody's, you know, working on poetry and classical music. But if you look at time use data from people who are unemployed, they're watching television, they're playing video games again. Maybe there's a cultural shift that changes all of that. I'm just not betting on it, and I'd want to see it first before I fully came out on that policy.
1: I think it's hard in a sense to kind of square a lot of the data on how people feel and what is actually happening. So to the kind of reporting that Sarah Cliff did, right? This is an example where you have people's insurance going up. And if you were to look at that on a community level, you'd say, wait, insurance is going up, why would they vote for Trump? But when you actually unpack it, it's really about kind of the relative differences that people are experiencing. And I think one of the things you can see that folks are having a hard time right now kind of in this post-election moment is there are these kind of community or state level or county level aggregate truths that we know from polling data and research that like once you actually then unpack it at a lower level and start to get at the relative dynamics of it, actually tells a totally different story. And it gets to the point about universal basic income, right? Is there always fundamentally going to be a kind of culture in which there are going to be people who are working there, people who have universal basic income? And is that fundamentally a sufficient cleavage to not make it work, right? Like, are the kind of things that we're discovering around relative anger and tension within communities, uh, you know, on labor, on insurance, on these core issues, essentially things that you can't overcome because this is just part of what's going on, right? How do you square those two things? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me take you to Michael's question on that note then. So Michael says, your journalistic style is significantly more conventional than any journalist I've ever listened to. I've wanted to do a long-time study looking at the ratio of time you're talking compared to the time your guest is talking and compare that to your peer podcast with guest interviews. I suspect that your ratio would be significantly higher. So how did you come to develop this journalistic style, and what do you view as the trade-offs of your brand of journalism in which you often reiterate or repeat your guest thoughts back at them versus a more directly interrogative uh, journalistic style? Why do I talk so much? <laughs> the core question of this podcast. You're um, just
2: explaining the news right, to your yes. interviewees um, because I'm undisciplined and no, uh, maybe actually. So I actually do have a theory behind this. I have a theory for this podcast and I have a theory for the kind of journalism I do. And and I'll, I'll try to explain it, but I want to be a little careful because I'm going to explain how I do things. This is not an attack or criticism of how other people do things. I – As a reporter was sort of raised by wolves, I became a reporter to some degree as a blogger before I didn't get training. I didn't have at that point a mentor in it. There wasn't, you know, I didn't take classes. I took I didn't work for the school paper. I just came to it pretty raw and there are very different kinds of reporting. And I think the kind of reporting that you're often taught to do is find something out reporting. This is reporting that helps you break stories. It's reporting that helps you get discrete points of data and bring them to the audience. It's reporting that helps you go to a city council meeting or a congressional hearing and say, what happened there? Take it take it to folks. The kinds of things that I did as I came into journalism through through the side door of blogging was I was often trying to understand just things I didn't understand. And as part of that, I didn't know what I didn't know which is an important thing, right? It's very different to go into a reporting context and what you need to know is when is the senator releasing the bill or what you need to know is what happened in the meeting or what you need to know is X and you just don't have it or what you need is a quote that you don't have. That's one kind of reporting. It's a very, very valuable kind. But I often went into things with an understanding of an issue that I recognized to be incomplete, but I didn't know where the holes were. If I knew where the holes were, my understanding would have been complete and So the thing that I often do as a reporter is state my understanding of something so that the person will push back on it. So the person will tell me where the holes are, because what I am really looking for is that insight, that bit of data, their understanding. I'm looking to mine what they know about an issue that I don't. And because I don't actually know what that is, what I have to do is give them where I am and let them respond as opposed to just asking them for what I already need to know. Um, on this show, that's carried over a little bit. Now, part of it is this show is mine <laughs> and I'm doing it in a way that, that interests me. And, and it's more interesting to me to have a conversation with people. It's how I learn. It's how I think. It's something I like. It's the kind of podcast I like when I listen to interview shows. I'm a fan of things like the Tim Ferriss show and the Pete Holmes show. Uh, and they have a much more conversational style. I don't find the formal style of interviewing, the clipped short question, uh, one after the other, after the other, after the other to be that good. I also don't think it creates very much rapport. So one thing I'm often trying to do with guests is let things ramble, let people be human, try to go into places maybe they don't really go in interviews all the time. And part of doing that is to be human myself with them. It's a great piece of advice I got from Kara Swisher, who also runs a great interview podcast, Recode Decode, um, and is a colleague of mine at Vox Media. And she told me that When you do an interview, she's a fantastic interview. She said, when you do an interview, the subject will act the way you act. If you act very formal and stiff, they will act formal and stiff. If you act open and friendly, they will act open and friendly. If you reveal things about yourself, they will reveal things about themselves. If you give them your ideas and your musings, they will muse
1: back at you. When you hear it, it might sound like a semi-professional product. So I'd like to now go back to the original question, which is what are the concerts you would have liked to go to that you're unwilling to share about? (laughs) Um, but, But real quick to finish the thought here, the interview
2: also, the way it works in practice is that there's a social dynamic in the room and when that social dynamic fails, it's a bad interview. When I fail to establish that rapport, it just doesn't work out. And so one thing I'm, I'm also trying to do in, in the room is just create a human experience for, for me and the person in here so that they act like a human being in, in reply. And you get an interview that is hopefully a discussion that is hopefully different than the one you've had before. The other thing is I am the constant for the audience in on this show. And so I'm, I'm also trying to be interesting because I'm, I'm often going to interview people who maybe the audience doesn't know, right? Some segment of the audience knows this person. Another segment knows the next one. And the hope is that if people like hearing the way I do interviews specifically, they will trust me when I bring in someone who maybe they don't already know and aren't already interested in.
0: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. So,
2: the one of the good concerts I wasn't going to bring up, um, and it's not that embarrassing, but definitely the first time I saw Spearhead, Michael Franti and Spearhead, when I was in high school. Everybody go listen to him right now.
1: It was a great concert. Stay human. Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> let, let me... Um... So let me ask you this, like when you think about where you came from having been raised by wolves in the journalistic sense and where you're going, like, where do you want to grow into as an interviewer? Where do you think like there's space for you to improve and like what skills would you like to refine? Ooh, there's a lot I could do better.
2: So one is I just really would like to be more prepared. (laughs) Um, This is one of many hats I wear and I probably wear too many, to be honest, to do the things I do well. So, you know, I run Vox, I try to write for Vox, and just cause to be a whole human being, I need to do my own writing sometimes. In addition to running the organization, I do a fair amount of editing at it. Pieces that are from people who I have a, a long relationship with or particular pieces that I'm interested in. I am doing some amount of video work for Vox. I do this podcast, the Weeds podcast. I, I try to have some amount of life on my own and and a bunch of other things that i you know, that are more personal. And There just isn't as much time. So I would like to spend more time reading the books that the people I interview have done. I would like to spend more time reading their articles, the profiles of them. I would like to listen to other discussions they've had or speeches they've given. And my just time to come into an interview prepared is very far from what I wish it was. My time to do a pre-interview with the person sometimes, which I don't normally do, but in some cases would be really helpful. I just don't have it. So I don't think I do a good job on that, and I think the the show really suffers for it. In terms of myself as an interviewer, you know, I could be a lot less rambling in my own questions. I, I, I like the fact that I, I do some talking and hopefully bring good ideas to the table, but I could do that without restating the same point four times. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So do your interviews that you do for your print reporting look much different from the interviews yeah. that everybody here is listening to? And how how does that actually happen? So there are two things here.
2: There's one is in interviews I do, to, do in text, right? Interviews that are meant to be a transcribed text conversation. And those actually tend to be much more pointed, in part because I do not have the patience or the energy to transcribe the rambling messes that I do on the air. So they tend to be much more specific, although not always. Sometimes there's a back and forth. But even in the editing of them, I will cut everything down quite a bit. You know, in terms of my report, I don't, I don't do nearly as much reporting as I did a, a couple of years back. So that's one thing. One of the, the great sadnesses of my life now is I really love reporting. I really love using journalism as a way to learn. And while I still get to do some writing, I do not have the time in my schedule to do that much reporting. And, and it really makes me worry that my writing is going to get or has gotten radically worse because in a very real way, I'm working on the fumes of what I already know. Mm-hmm. not coming up and finding new insights and avenues and directions and approaches but when I do do that reporting, you know, it, it can be a bit more varied because when I am reporting, I'm often reporting for different reasons. Sometimes I am just trying to get an individual piece of information. Those are skills that I've developed over the years, so I can do that kind of interview. Sometimes I am just trying to get the right quote from a person who, that I need to round out an article. And then, you know, sometimes it's like this, you know, and I'm having lunch with someone or I'm on the phone with them and I'm just trying to find out what they think is interesting. It's actually something that I try to talk to reporters at, at Vox about, and, and I'm not sure how well I always do it. There's a very big difference between reporting for articles and being sourced. And if anything, I want folks in my organization to actually emphasize the sourcing, right, to be part of an ongoing conversation that is giving you ideas for great articles and giving you knowledge to do great articles more than to be just trying to use the phone or, or use reporting to finish out articles that have already been conceived of. I think that one of my real talents as a journalist is, is that I am really good at hearing when somebody has just given me an article idea. Mm -hmm. I am really good at hearing when the thing they just said is a piece I should do, even if it's just something they are themselves confused about, because recognizing that their confusion is actually a Mm -hmm. a signal that people are confused here. But that requires talking to people in a much more open-ended way. And again, it's something I I do a lot less of and have less time for now.
1: All right, we're going to go to Catherine. Catherine asks, what's up Catherine? <laughs> what's up Catherine? What are the three things you believe are true that you did not believe were true prior to starting your podcast? Potentially this connects to the last question as a direct result of talking to any and all of your guests or from any other spheres. I wrote some notes on this question because I saw it come up. Oh, but my fucking
2: oh. phone is not going to let me find them. So I'm going to have to do this live. <laughs> <laughs> Got a
1: new phone and I'm not logged into to Google here. The challenges of knowing what you've learned. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What were my answers to this? So,
2: oh, so one thing that I have learned from a guest, Bruce Friedrich, that I did not believe coming in is that if you're concerned about animal suffering, and and I am, it is a better equilibrium to eat beef than to be vegetarian. Mm -hmm. So eggs, it just turns out, just have a tremendous amount of cruelty in them. The way egg-laying chickens are treated is just unbelievably brutal. And look, like I recognize there are exceptions. Like if you are somebody and you keep chickens in your backyard and you only eat your backyard eggs, I'm I'm not I'm not talking to you. I I, I hear you. It's great. Good <laughs> it's for, for you. a different audience. Uh, but most people aren't doing that. And we're eating a lot of eggs on their own that are commodity eggs. We're eating a lot of commodity eggs in other products like baked goods, like mayonnaise. And those animals are really, really brutalized. Then a lot of people also, I think, think it would just be more humane to eat smaller animals like fish. And the thing that that Bruce emphasizes is that a couple things, but but the big one is that big animals are better eat than small animals. Mm-hmm. So it takes you as a person a couple of years to finish a cow. Every few years you could eat a cow. You can eat a chicken in a night. You can eat a fish for breakfast, right? Like, I mean, it depends on the fish, obviously. But... So uh, if you're worried about how many animals are suffering for you to be able to have delicious food, I think the numbers that, that that Bruce uses are we would cut animals killed for food by something like 96% if the only animal we eat was beef. And cattle are treated better than a lot of the other animals for reasons related to how they grow and what they need to grow and and, and all of that. So vegetarianism is probably a worse equilibrium for animal suffering than um, just eating beef but cutting out eggs and dairy and a bunch of other things to the extent you can and particularly particularly cutting out eggs all right hold on i'm gonna get my answers here because i want to i don't want to give
1: a dumb answer to this the question's too good the question is very good It's, it's interesting on that front though right because it pushes you on like how binding some of these identities can be right like vegetarian is you know an identity in which you just are not going to eat any of these animals. Uh, but that actually might not be the way that you'd minimize cruelty towards these animals. And the question then is kind of going to the, back to the universal basic income one, right? Like how do you shift kind of cultural equilibriums that kind of have some of these set identities in them and set understandings to new ones, even if they're more optimal? I mean, here's, a, here's a,
2: I think, actually a great point about a, a great place to talk about how cultures do change. Because I, I would urge people to be early on this one. Uh, We are developing right now really, really, really good synthetic meat. (laughs) And already what you can get from groups like Beyond Meat, I'm a big fan of the Beyond Meat chicken strips. They should advertise on this show. I would endorse them very wholeheartedly. Impossible Foods, their burger. There's a lot of good food from Gardein. Just Mayo, which is from Hampton Creek, is a great product. So there's a lot of stuff out there that is making it much, much easier to be vegetarian or even vegan now. And that stuff is only going to get better. Our ability to create plant-based meats, our ability to grow lab meat eventually. It's in those moments that culture really changes. When all of a sudden it's really easy to be vegetarian, then it's easier for people to get up on their soapbox like I am here and be like, well, everybody Time should to be, be vegetarian <laughs> or, you know, whatever, eat beef or whatever it might be. And so I think culture often changes in response to technology. I think the technology around meat is changing very dramatically. And by the way, changing in both directions. It was not as cruel to be a meat eater 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Factory farming, particularly the confined animal feeding operations, has made eating commodity meat or commodity eggs a much crueler proposition. So on the one hand, I think technology has made eating meat in many ways much more much worse. And then on the other hand, I think it's making not eating meat much easier. And I think the culture is going to change on this. And I think 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people are going to look at folks in our pretty much exact
1: moment, right? Like this 50 year chunk in which you see this rise, 40, 50
2: year chunk, where on the one hand, we knew that the way we were treating animals was so horrific. We were literally passing laws to make it illegal to videotape it because if any, if people knew it. It would like bring the industry to its knees, right? There are literally laws where you cannot go and film inside these operations. And on the other hand, we had all of these technologies that made it perfectly easy and delicious to not eat meat. Also, you know, we get, you can eat bananas from chili whenever you want. It's just a lot easier to be vegetarian than it used to be. So I think people will look at us right now and say there was no reason for them to be doing that. That was a choice that they could have made differently. And I think we will be judged as a society very harshly for this. Item number two. I number, number two, two I've actually mentioned, which is from the Arthur Brooks interview, that rates of work happiness are are steady across education levels. That would not have been my assumption. I would have thought that people in more manual, difficult labor, um, and labor where maybe they didn't have as much choice of of their job, would have been less happy. According to him, that's not what the the research shows. Uh, finally, I will say that I have been surprised and was not sure starting this out that people would listen to one to two hour discussions rambling from you know antitrust law to meditation practices to veganism to all the, the weird stuff I like to talk about. Uh, so that has been a, a nice surprise. When I started this podcast um, and I was asking Aaron for best practices, people told me to go shorter. And I didn't want to do that just because I wasn't interested in those conversations. I wanted to have these long, deep conversations where things got a little strange. And that was a very untested idea for me. That had worked in other spaces, right, like in comedy. But, yeah, it's more interesting to listen to comedians talk for two and a half hours than to listen to me interview a political scientist (laughs) for, for, you know, 120 minutes. And it turned out people were willing to stick around for that. So that's been great.
1: <laughs> let me let me ask you a variant of the same question that follows up on your last point, which is I think it's been about two years since you started Vox now. And I wanna know what are three things that you used to believe before starting Vox that you've really changed your mind on through uh, launching an organization and you oh, know God. starting with a small group of people <laughs> to now a, eighty-five staff. This could be a four and a half hour <laughs> podcast
2: in and of itself. Um, I, I will try to give this answer. So one is it when I launched, I believed that brands were really going to diminish in importance in the news space. So I thought that, and and I think a lot of people thought that where we were going because of Facebook, because of Twitter, because social media was disrupting distribution in the way that in the way that it was. I thought that content was just gonna live, individual pieces of content. I know people don't like the word content, but screw off really. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> journalists are so unbelievably um, the content. Journalists are so unbelievably just like touchy with how you talk about it. What does it matter if you call things content?
1: On the next podcast. Yeah, right. This is when when everybody
2: gets so mad at me. Anyway, because we now operate in a lot of mediums, I can't call everything an article. So what I thought was going to happen was that Facebook, Twitter had disaggregated things in such a way that people just didn't care where things came from. They would just click on anything. And you see a bit of that, right? That's what all this fake news stuff is about. People click on something. They don't know where it's from. And so, you know, they, they believe a, a, an organization built to look like a news organization that is really just producing lies. But one of the really big surprises to me was actually how much brand mattered, how much. One of the things that we did well almost accidentally at the beginning of Vox was create a brand like we are the explainer news people. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the yellow logo. Uh, we have a, a culture hmm. that is pretty distinct to us and and who we are, and it, it it tends to manifest in ways that are similar, but but nevertheless distinct across different platforms. But so that people who first encounter us on YouTube find they're encountering something very similar when they come to our homepage. When they come to our homepage, they are encountering something that is spiritually connected to our podcast and so on. I have really been shocked by how crucial that is. Really shocked by how much that has been a critical factor in our success, in who wants to work with us, in Mm -hmm. the way in which we develop audience. So I've come to think much more in a day-to-day way about what brand are we building? What is everything we're doing saying to people about who we are? Uh, And and I I didn't think that was where the industry was going, but in, in some ways, I think it's going there even more. I think that as I've come to believe that as everything is fractured, people are more intent on connecting to brands, companies, individual authors who they trust and believe is, you know, are are, are going to work for them and 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 play it straight with them. So that's with, one thing. With increasing noise, the
1: signal matters all the more yeah. that comes through brand.
2: Another thing I did not recognize early on, I, I had done cable news, uh, a lot of cable news. I had hosted shows and the whole thing. And I would say that when I did cable news, and, and I'm not saying this is how everybody does it, but I actually think it's how a lot of people do it the way I did television was I talked articles out in in front of cameras. And I was not I was in a visual meeting doing a very non-visual form of journalism, you know, what you would call the elements, which is pictures and, you know, video and stuff. It was very incidental to to the work I was doing. So I came in with an idea of news video as being, you know, really very similar to written work. And I had the incredible good fortune to meet a guy named Joe Posner at a journalism conference and hire him as my video director. And he built, I think, I I really think Vox has the best videos of anyone in the news space, like full stop online anyway. And the way he did that was Joe believes correctly and has persuaded me that if you want to be in a visual medium, you make visual products. So he does not just choose topics based on, you know, what's in the news that day. It has to have a visual dimension to it. He has to have a way to tell that story visually. There has to be a reason a video is a video. That is something that I did not believe to the extent that, I mean, it seems obvious to me now, but it was actually a pretty big shift in my thinking. I thought you could just put, you know, writers in front of a camera, have them talk out some interesting opinions, and, and you'd have a video program. And and Joe has really shown me the the tremendous error of my ways. Uh, what is a third thing that, man, these threes are hard. That's a lot of things.
1: tough. It's a tough list. I'm gonna do two for now. Two sounds
3: good.
2: <laughs> two is great. There are more um, things, but I, I, I want to be careful about what I. Uh, I've I've learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so some of those lessons have been hard. Um, a lot of them have been good, but 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 it's it's hard. What's it's a hard, hard what's building a, what's an organization. What's a hard lesson? Like what's a what's what's a hard le- what's a that it would a make me feel more vulnerable what's, all the time. I'll say more about that. When it was me, and or even when it was just Wonkblog, I'll use me as the example because it seems like. Criticism of me should hurt more. Right? Mm-hmm. If somebody's saying, Ezra, you're a jerk or you're dumb or you're wrong or you're a neoliberal sellout or a crazy communist or whatever it is, it, it seems like that should hurt more because it's directly at me. But I was pretty good at handling criticism of me. Vox, it it has made me feel just much more vulnerable as a human being. I don't want to take this analogy too far because I do not have children. I cannot imagine what it is like to have children, and I'm not equating the experience of running a business to to the experience of being responsible for a human being. But there is this line people use about having kids that it's like having your heart run around outside your body. Mm-hmm. And I've put a lot of myself into Vox. Uh, I care about it very deeply. I care the, about the people at it very deeply, which is a, an, an important piece of this. And, you know, every day things can go right for it or things can go wrong for it. And it's out of my control. There's a lot I do control there, but, but, It's 85 people. Somebody can make a mistake. Somebody outside can attack really unfairly. I'll give just a very small example. And I give this example because I feel very self-righteous about it. Todd Vanderwerf is our um, critic at large. He is an awesome, awesome cultural critic, does great work on television, movies, does great essays. Uh, He's uh, he's a writer I've just tremendous respect for. He wrote a really great review of the new Star Wars movie, Rogue One. And... The review was about the ways in which the movie was – the ways in which the movie is really about war and death in a way that no Star Wars movie has been before. The Star Wars series has been very cartoonish and I haven't seen Rogue One myself but, but it's a much darker, grimmer, more violent film. And it, and it is really in some ways foregrounding something that you know you just sort of like – had in the background which is in theory what the story is telling you about is a time of immense interplanetary suffering, death, horror. And <laughs> uh, and you know and and it 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 forces you to to grapple with that. It's a war film in the sense of like actual war movies or war shows like Band of Brothers that's set in the Star Wars universe. Great. He had this title a headline for it. I think the headline was Star Wars Rogue One is a first Star Wars movie to acknowledge that this series is really about war. It was something like that. That's, it, I'm sure it was shorter because we wouldn't have a headline that long and rambling. <laughs> and all these jerks on Twitter were like, oh, well, war is right there in the title. It's Star Wars. How can you say that? It's right there. You, you're saying it, it was never about war. And it was such a shitty, stupid hit. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody thinks Star Wars is more about war than Saving Private Ryan, right? If you said that to somebody, which movie is about war? <laughs> Saving Private Ryan or Star Wars a New Hope. Nobody's going to be like, "Well, obviously Star Wars <laughs> none is of the above <laughs> the title. so that's the movie that's really about war Anyway, th- this doesn't matter. it 's not, not, not an important hit on Fox, but I feel it like really deeply. I get really upset on behalf of my writers, and I also can't respond in the way I used to because I have to keep my powder much drier as the head of the organization. It's just not good for me to get into fights on the Internet. And so I didn't expect how emotionally hard it would be in that way, how much I would take criticism personally, how much I would care about it in a way that – I mean, I, I care about all the things I've done professionally. But somehow this one, because it it's so much faster growing, it's so much more experimental, we're trying so much more stuff all the time, we are training people up all the time, you know, there, there's just so much more going on and it's so much more public, it's under so much more scrutiny – that that has been a piece of this that has been hard. Now look there, there's a lot of joy that comes from it too. Like I don't want to I don't want to take away from how unbelievably lucky and and grateful I am that we've built something that is actually doing well, that has a good business that people care about that that, that a lot of people feel um speaks to them. So, you know, thank God I can't imagine how hard it would be if it, if we were if it hadn't connected. But it has been a much more vulnerable experience than I would have expected and a more vulnerable experience than when, than when it was just me out there which was something I didn't I didn't see coming
1: has it gotten easier over time yeah. or, or so alternatively right like if it was just you at the beginning and you could kind of take everything on yourself, or maybe for a small crew of writers, right? I could see the argument going, as you grow, you have more staff who you care about. You have a bigger organization, and it just actually gets increasingly challenging because there are too many fronts to have the Twitter wars on to kind of protect folks from. And so you could see it spinning out, right? Like with each additional, you know, member that you bring onto your team, it's an additional heart running around outside your body. I mean, that's But like... (laughs) But does it, so that it's that would a, seem to say it would make it harder. Yeah, it's gotten easier for a
2: different reason. With every day that goes by, we feel more secure to me. Mm-hmm. Right? We are a stronger organization. We are a better organization. We are a higher quality organization. I have really, really deep pride in the work we're doing right now. Like really deep pride. And we just stand on a stronger foundation. So when we were doing things in the first six months that for one reason or another, if they didn't work out, it just felt very tenuous. It felt like the whole thing was fragile, like it could collapse. You know, you never want to be overly confident, right? Things can go wrong. Terrible things can happen. But we don't feel to me as tenuous now. We feel like our reputation is more established, like our audience is more loyal. We are more sure-footed in the work we're doing. We are more sure-footed in what it means to be Vox on any given day. And so I'm just a little bit less scared for it. In the same way, like to go back to the analogy, right, when your kid is toddling around and like constantly trying to like throw – herself off stairs, (laughs) it's a little (laughs) bit different than when they're, you know, eight, I would imagine, and they seem just a little bit more like able to feed themselves and recognize that heights are bad to fall from. (laughs) Um, You know, we have done, you know, we are just a, a slightly more established organization. So that's, that makes me feel more protected and also we have built up a lot of organizational maturity. I have great managers. I have great writers. And there's a great culture that I really believe in and that I feel very confident in the decisions it makes every day when I'm not around. It's always been true that we've had great people there, but we've just learned a lot in the last couple of years. So that stuff is all there. But as you say, there are ways in which it gets harder. I mean, there are ways in which on the one hand with 85 people, more can go right. And on the other hand, there's more opportunities for things to go wrong. and, And I feel like afraid of my phone. Any day can just bring some random bad news on my phone. <laughs> don't
1: check Twitter, <laughs> which, uh, don't which I don't, don't like. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going go to go to – I can also bring good news. I want to be clear. Yeah. We're going to go to Tyler who says, you've touched on this before, but what are three of your priors, uh, whether it be political, social, cultural, economic, et cetera, about American politics, American public life, Or American public policy that were completely destroyed by the 2016 election outcome and that you're now really seriously reconsidering. Completely destroyed. Okay. So I would have told you it was
2: impossible for somebody to be elected if a majority of voters thought they were unqualified to hold the office. Donald Trump on the day he won the election... Sixty-some percent of voters thought he was unqualified for the presidency. I would have said that is not going to happen. <laughs> the, the word I would have used is disqualifying due to the word qualified being so prevalent in this argument. That turned out to not be disqualified. There were a number of people who thought Trump was not qualified to hold the most serious position that you can hold as you know in, in American political life, probably in political life anywhere, the most powerful position that can be held, and decided to vote for the unqualified guy. There is a real resonance there when women talk about how they need to be twice as qualified as men to get to a position. The idea that we would have voted for as a – well, I guess we didn't vote for But the idea that we would have elected as a country a woman or an African-American who people thought was unqualified, I think it is very unlikely. <laughs> but I also would have thought it was unlikely about a white guy. So I don't actually mean to just make this a question mm-hmm. of demographics. I just didn't think this could happen. So that is something I have I have changed my mind on. Something else I've changed my mind on, this is just this is just hard. It's hard to talk about, it's hard to feel. I'm somebody who's pretty idealistic still about politics and about my fellow voters. I thought there was a bar you couldn't go beneath, even in a very partisan polarized time. I thought there was a bar you couldn't go beneath. And if you did, you would just hemorrhage support. And I think Donald Trump in way after way, moment after moment, time after time, went beneath what I would have thought is the minimum in American politics. And I want to be really clear. This is not an argument about ideology. This is something that I think of as totally bipartisan, totally transpartisan. I think Mitt Romney was, and I said this, by the way, at the time, this is not revisionist history. I think Mitt Romney was a very impressive human being. He had been a tremendous manager. He had done, you know, pretty impressive things in business. There are things I disagreed with him on, but he was clearly like above the bar. You know, I thought that Barack Obama was an impressive human being. I I think that now. Trump lied constantly. He showed no interest in knowing anything about policy and routinely didn't. But beyond that, he was cruel. He was bullying. The way he acted on Twitter was just childish. It was just... I wouldn't let one of my reporters act the way he acted on Twitter. Like I would fire someone for it. Absolutely. If they kept doing it, the people he decided to give voice to in his campaign or refused to denounce the times when it was like pulling teeth to get him to denounce somebody like David Duke or his endorsements from various kinds of white nationalists, just what was being uncorked with him, the sexual, the the clear pattern of very severe sexual assault that came out during the campaign, the degree to which, by the way, his fellow Republicans routinely said, you cannot trust this guy with nuclear weapons. And this, by the way, what's crazy to me, it's not, this is not a situation where the American people disagreed. Mm-hmm. It's one thing if what I am doing here is I'm sitting here saying... I think this guy is unqualified. I think this guy should not be trusted with nuclear weapons. But voters thought the opposite. Voters agreed with this point. They thought he had a bad temperament for office. Like On the day of the election, in exit polling, they thought he was not qualified for office. They thought that he did not bring the qualities you would want to see in a president. And I guess that brings me to the third thing, which is I am somebody who it is foundational to my thinking that – the strength of partisan identity and of party polarization is the central fact in American politics today and even I had underestimated it. What I had underestimated was that almost no matter who you are, even if you're Donald Trump, even if you come into the Republican Party the way he did, even if you're called a cancer on conservatism by Rick Perry, even if you are disendorsed by many members of the Senate, I mean, it's clear Republicans sent the signal over and again. We do not think this is a good guy. We do not think this guy is a conservative. We do not think, you know, this will work. We do not think he should be president. But even so, polarization was such, it was like, well, we may think all that, but we really don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. So vote for him anyway. And what that means to me is that really, no matter who you are, you start with 45, 46 percent of the vote in today's America. And what Mm -hmm. Trump was able to do was he had, you know, whatever, 45, because just you get it doesn 't matter doesn 't matter what you do or what you say you're a member one of the two major political parties. A majority of Trump voters said they're voting against Hillary Clinton, yeah, right so they you know the the vote here was we don 't want the Democrats to be in power and Hillary Clinton, I know people have strong she's she's a very conventional Democrat. She is as mainstream as you get in a fundamental way. Trump is a unique thing in American politics, so I mean that to me was you know i'm sure there are Democrats who are less polarizing who people hate less. That is all true. But in terms of what are you afraid of, Clinton was just going to govern like a Democrat. And I think people kind of got that. But you start with 45 percent. Trump added on some folks who were excited by things he would say that other people in politics wouldn't say. And I don't think those were good things that he said. I think there are a lot of folks who are happy to finally hear somebody say, build a wall, keep the immigrants out. The Muslims want to kill you. Trump, he was very clear. People say he did not run an issue based campaign. but. Travel ban on Muslims, that's a policy position. Build the wall, that's a policy position. So he took 45 or 44%, added a bunch of folks maybe who have been disaffected from politics, who are because they feel that nobody represents their views. And I think there were reasons that the two parties tried to stay away from the representing those views, and then got up to 47% or whatever it was. And he had a really good geographic distribution of that vote. <laughs> And you win. But it's why I say and I think sometimes people think that what I'm saying is a tautology here but it's not. It's why I keep saying that the question is not how Hillary Clinton lost. That I can give you 52 answers for. The question is how Donald Trump was close enough to win. For me, the hard part here isn't how Hillary Clinton versus Republican and Hillary Clinton loses the election. It's how was it Hillary Clinton versus Republican. It's how Donald Trump consolidated the Republican Party to roughly the same degree that Hillary Clinton consolidated the Democratic Party, given what he showed of himself, given how many Republicans voiced their concerns about him, given how out of the norms of politics he was. That's a place where I just thought we had guardrails in public opinion as a society, and, and I was just wrong. And so
1: there it's it's almost not about the marginal win, in a sense. I, the right. question that I wanted to ask you was like... Those are the things that you've changed your mind on. But how deeply have you changed your mind on them, right? Like if 107,000 votes or, you know, would have shifted a few states, right? We would have just – but this is what you That's you're that distinction I'm making Right, Like end. this is the key If this thing. were about
2: 107,000 votes, I wouldn't have changed my mind on anything. Right. But it's about millions of votes because what I don't understand – I don't remember Donald Trump's exact vote total off the top of my head. But what I don't understand is not how Donald Trump was at – 47 versus 47.2%. Why, what I don't understand is crushing. why he's at 47.2 as opposed to 38.6. I don't understand how he was close. That's where I've changed my views on things. I thought that the way he acted, and I think yeah. that would have been a consensus opinion. I thought that the way he acted in American politics would have just led to, a, as I said earlier, a hemorrhaging of support.
1: And it didn't. So two kind of follow-up questions that relate to this. One is, how do you think the role of Vox changes in the coming years under a Trump administration that you maybe had thought of differently had a Clinton administration come into play? And two, and I think for for a lot of folks listening, like, what do you think— Individuals should do right. Like I can see the case for like journalism is never been more important. Holding the administration to account is key. I'm just going to
2: answer the journalism one.
1: <laughs> I don't know. The individual one, you got to get. I don't know.
2: <laughs> um, the media failed at, at a lot in 2016. There's been this panic about fake news, and fair enough. But I think that if you went out and talked to Trump voters, as I've done to some degree. You do not find many people who say, I voted for Trump because Pope Francis endorsed him. That was a very popular fake news story that I do not think was a very big factor in the election. I think you get a lot of people who say, I voted for Trump because Hillary Clinton is a criminal who should be in jail. Hillary Clinton is not a criminal who should be in jail. Hillary Clinton did a stupid thing with her state email server that other politicians and members of the government do all the time. The degree to which these laws are skirted by everyone all the time is absurd. By the way, the degree to which Donald Trump was a much less transparent and much more ethical dodgy candidate was overwhelming. And she got the way the media reported on that, the complete lack of proportionality to the underlying crime gave people a very flawed impression. It gave people the impression that you had a corrupt candidate running against like a like a potential criminal candidate running against like a weird, unqualified, extreme, temperamentally strange candidate. That was not the election we had. And not just that, I think that as an industry, I do not think people know what Trump's policies are. I don't think they knew what Clinton's policies were. I don't think they know what his tax plan is. We just did this work talking to folks who voted for Trump or on Obamacare. They just assumed that whatever he said about Obamacare was a lie, that he would never actually do any of that stuff. They also don't really know what it is that he said on Obamacare. They kind of vaguely know he wanted to repeal it. They don't know that his plan was much harsher, much crueler than even the other Republican repeal plans. There was a poll I saw come out that the only thing millennials trusted Trump on more than Clinton was regulating Wall Street. Folks clearly like these are young liberal people. Mm -hmm. They did not know that Trump's plan was to just deregulate Wall Street pretty much entirely to complete repeal. Frank, then he went in. He made two Goldman Sachs bankers his top two economic policy advisors positions. I don't think people knew about Clinton's pre-K plan or call. Like, I think we just totally fucking lost sight of what's important. I think we were distracted the whole time. I think Trump managed to distract. I don't actually want to say us because I think she think Fox did a better job on this stuff. I think we did a great job covering the financial regulation plans, for instance. But it was an election in which the media got very distracted all the time and in which I think we lost sight of the stakes and consequences of American politics. And I think Vox's role in this era is to do something that I think is pretty core to our DNA, pretty core to my DNA as a journalist which is to say that what is important is what is interesting, that policy changes people's lives. Policy is why we give a shit about politics in the first place. It is why it matters who wins these elections. And we are going to be pretty laser focused on being the best place to understand the consequences of what is happening, of what is being done, of what is being proposed, of what is being passed. We are making management and organizational decisions based on that. We're making personnel decisions based on that. We just announced today, actually, although it will not be today when you hear this, that Jim Tankersley, who is the single best policy journalist in the nation, one of my favorite journalists, is coming to Vox to help drive this coverage. We are going to be a place that takes the Trump. There's this fucking line about Trump. Like the media takes Trump literally, but not seriously. You know, voters take Trump. Seriously, but not literally. The The truth is, like, you have to take this guy seriously and literally. He is the president-elect. He And by the way, what he said in his policy positions is a much better guide to the appointments he's made than mm-hmm. just like the random stuff he tweeted or said on the stump. He often just lied on the stump. You know, he talked about draining the swamp and being a populist. And he looked and it was like, this sure seems like a giveaway to Wall Street. So what happens when he gets elected? Does he drain the swamp? Does he govern as a populist? Or does he give a bunch of Wall Street bankers top positions? Hey, he does a thing that his policy said he would do. He said at one point in a debate that he believed the government should cover everybody with health care. He wasn't a normal Republican. He thought it was important that people had health insurance. And who was going to pay for it? The government was going to pay for it. Then he read his policy, and his policy was stingier than the other Republican repeal and health care policies. It would have kicked 20, 30 million people off of health insurance. And so which Trump is true, he's making his HHS secretary one of the most fervent Obamacare repealers in Congress, one of the folks with, again, a much harsher plan. Paul Ryan's plan is a more liberal health care plan than, than the new HHS secretary, uh, Representative Price's plan. Again, I think this is stuff Vox covered pretty well, but I think we're going to get much more focused on it, more staff to do it. And I think it's going to be more important and I think people recognize it's more important. So I think we have a role to play. It's not what I thought we'd be doing. I thought we'd basically be in a stalemate situation between Hillary Clinton and Paul Ryan and politics would become pretty uninteresting. (laughs) So I was planning to invest in in pretty different areas, some of which I'm I'm sad uh, we're not going to get to do uh, or not do yet anyway. But I think what we have to do now is pretty clear.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free.
4: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
1: I'm going to take you to possibly not happier scapes with Betsy's question, which starts, can you call my paranoia? I'm normally a rational person and my liberal Facebook feed is filled with stories of Russian hacking, the U.S. election and paper ballot counties being very far from the electronic ballots. As a person I trust most in the media, can you tell me why this Russian hacking business is ridiculous and I should stay away from it? I'd love to come back to reality. So one reason that I was interested in this question, which I'd asked
2: Grant to include, is it was sent on November 20th. By the time this comes out, it'll be more than a month later. And the answer is you should have been really fucking concerned about Russian <laughs> hacking. I cannot. I can calm some of the paranoia. I don't think there's evidence that ballots were miscounted. And the way the American election system is built, that is – that kind of hacking is extraordinarily hard to do on any kind of large scale. We have election systems that are different state by state and often different down to the county by county level. Some counties are paper ballots. Some counties have optical scanners. Some have voting machines. It's not like you can just hack into one computer and like change the whole thing. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that the election was hacked in terms of changing vote counts. But there is overwhelming evidence. It is the conclusion of the FBI and the CIA that Russia did hack into the DNC. It did hack into the Republican National Committee, too. And it released Democratic files, according to the CIA, in order to embarrass and create terrible news stories about Hillary Clinton. Now, did those news stories change 110,000 votes in three critical states? Maybe. They may be why Donald Trump is president. Also, if that's true, then what happened is Russia hacked the election got a super pro-Russia president who, instead of being upset about the Russian hacking, has decided to go to war with the CIA over the CIA telling people that Russia hacked the election and has now nominated somebody with a friend of Putin or friend of Russia medal. I forget which it is, Rex Tillerson, for secretary of state. So we are living in a reality that would have been an absurd plot line on Twenty Four. We are living in a reality that if you had just written all this down, you'll be like, your movie is stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Nobody would vote for that guy. Russia wouldn't get away with that. The American people would freak out if they heard this about Russia, like we'd be going to war with them. Like if I had just like giving you this plot synopsis, you, you would have said, listen, that's very childish. That's a very, I mean, it's, it's good. It's easy to self-publish now. Um, but no, here we are um and and i cannot calm. i can call them a bit of paranoia but overall i think this is a time when the boundaries of what is possible in politics have proven to be much broader than we thought and not in ways that are comforting and so it's it's not paranoia if the world is actually really fucked scary
1: you got to ask so, me a happier question next so this, this is gonna getting a, too dark this is going to be this going to be a follow up on that <laughs> we're going to go to to uh, unicorns and uh, marshmallows um so, In your writing, you focus on domestic politics. You focus on American politics. With the Russian hacking and more broadly as you look out, like what surprises you most about global politics given your understanding and the way you think about American politics? And like do you just bring those lenses to your understanding of foreign relations and international relations and where does it serve you or where does it not serve you?
2: So I think that to a large extent, honestly, I try to be a lot more humble in my understanding of foreign policy. I don't write as definitive or conclusive or assertive pieces on those issues, even though those issues are are big in the news, as I I do. Part of that is I had a pretty searing experience there. I mean, I I was a college kid, so on some level, maybe who cares? But I was for the Iraq War um, as a college kid. I turned against it you know, quickly after it started and, and whatever, but I was for it. And, you know, I'm not sure my judgment on those issues, certainly when I don't know enough, is good enough to confidently have opinions, Particularly now that my opinions matter somewhat more. Not to say my opinions drive policy or anything like that, but, you know, I would not want to get something like that wrong again. And so I'm a lot more cautious in terms of what I say we should and shouldn't do. You know, in terms of what I see that is surprising, or again, I actually think it's surprising Russia is intervening in American politics so directly. I think that's pretty scary. Uh, I do think that we underestimate just how much better the world is getting has gotten. I think that we are so negatively biased in terms of the news. So you get tremendous coverage. I mean, properly of individual terrorist attacks or instability or something like Brexit, get a lot less coverage of the tremendous number of people being lifted out of poverty in China and in India, of the fact that the World Bank thinks it is actually plausible that we will eliminate extreme poverty, dollar-a-day poverty worldwide within 20 years and some people actually think that that goal is too pessimistic that we can do much better than that. So I think I think that we the, the level of negativity bias is actually really problematic. I think a lot in the world is going really well. You know, the the thing that I do think is surprising is the degree to which the European Union is really not working out, the degree to which European identity is failing as a institution and a governing force. I don't just mean the currency zone. I mean, the Britain exiting the the European Union is a really big fucking deal. The degree to which in the currency crisis, you saw the lack of identity knitting these countries together is a really big deal. The rise of far right parties in places like Hungary, December, even in places like France is a really Mm -hmm. big deal. So I'm not sure that the big story of this period will not be a pretty Catastrophic reordering of the European governing consensus, but again, I actually, I, I really don't know. It's not something I'd predict with any confidence. I
1: remember a few weeks ago, when uh, there was the Austrian revote for the president, and uh, I think the first green ever won um, the presidency there by beating a far right neo-Nazi whose party was literally started in 1956 by former SS officers, and you just. And I was like, oh, thank God that neo-Nazi didn't win the presidency of Austria. And you just – and and you start to think like the – slip towards a liberalism in some of these places that have been bastions of cosmopolitanism. Uh, it's just really striking. Yeah, and this it's is of, why I get my opinions on this from you. <laughs> <laughs> You've said this in previous podcasts, but you kind of wonder, like, what are the plots that we're missing about these times? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, in a lot of senses, and they may be technological, they may be scientific. Yeah. But, like, one of the ones that I think about a lot, right, is, like, well, we look back on this as, like, essentially the beginning of a mass rise. In, a, in the type of a liberalism that has generated catastrophic conflicts across uh, historical battlefields before, right? It's, you know, it's interesting, like I remember when we were on this podcast and one of the things that we've talked about is uh, Steve Pinker's book kind of to your point about the world getting better, violence reducing. The core argument is that violence is reducing radically over time and there's this one very savvy statistical paper that says actually when you when you look at the data and you play uh, some more advanced methods, you see these huge spikes every 50 years and, there's, and those are probabilities so there's some variance on that. And so you see one around World War I. You see one around World War II. And like the real question is like, is this actually getting better or is, are we just a few years overdue? Are we just overdue? Right? Are we just yeah. overdue? Did
2: we just elect a guy who one of his questions was, well, why can't I use nuclear weapons? more? For, I mean, we got all these nuclear weapons. You tell them, why do we have them then? <laughs> I mean, that stuff is scary. I do wonder. I, I think a lot about when the histories of this period are written, what will be written about and what will be skipped over. You know, there are days when I think what will be written about is that we invented CRISPR and we can now do gene editing uh, of ourselves and DNA editing of ourselves, and this will be written about as a period where we we took over human evolution. um or maybe it'll be written about as a period when liberalism swept up, and you know we we took some big steps backwards. Uh, I do not have a very catastrophic constitution. I, I tend to have a sort of everything will be okay. Let's normalize tendency to me. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty quick to bounce back from things, but I have a pretty catastrophic imagination. My my view my my idea of how the world works is that those of us who have had the good fortune to grow up in the era that I've grown up you know born in in 1984 we have seen a pretty good world. Not a world without terrible things. There have been genocides, like in Rwanda. There have, been, I mean, the terrible things have yeah. happened. So I don't want. I'm not trying to erase suffering. But compared to other eras in human history, this has been a this has been one where it has felt like the arc of human history bends towards progress, towards justice, towards inclusion, towards peacefulness. It is not clear that it's an arc. I always found this so amazing the amount of time in which human beings have just seen their incomes their real incomes increase reliably just really dates back to the industrial revolution in Britain. Mm-hmm. you go before that yeah. and you just have centuries and and eons where people are basically just at starvation levels all the time it just didn't get better you just i mean this is we do this thing now where we laugh at the malthusian trap but He was right until then. He was right that before then, as you increase population, you had starvation. And, you know, it's not that you couldn't do it at all, but you couldn't do it fast. And then we really take off and things change. And that has to do with the enlightenment and our ability to apply the scientific method. And it has to do with our ability to our discovery of fossil fuels and our ability to harness them to power economic progress. But things can go wrong. You can get terrible pandemics that we're not thinking about. Global warming could just be worse than we think. <laughs> I think we have a lot of <laughs> These trouble predictions. appreciating. Like we are on track for a quantity of warming that is approaching the difference between most of human history and the ice age. It may be that we just blow up the world or in this case, freeze the world and, you know, hundreds of millions of people die and... There's tremendous instability because of drought. Things can go really badly. We, I think, I think it is hard to appreciate that as mm-hmm. a, just a human being, very hard to live that way. But I sure hope we're not the, we're not the generation. We're not the era that really fucked it up.
1: <laughs> and on that note, so let me, and on that note, uh, <laughs> goodbye. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs> How do you remain optimistic, right? Like uh, one is that you've got you've only got the constitution to remain optimistic and so you just swing back in the pendulum but like yeah. it's it's, <laughs> it's regular releases of dopamine man <laughs> are there ways you see the world or there things you do for
2: yourself are there i'm i'm a, uh, i'm i'm deeply optimistic about technological progress that is the fundamental i'm optimistic about technological progress and and on some level pretty optimistic about human beings and so when you ask me how i think we will get out of a bunch of things my best answer is I do not believe we should count on it. I don't believe we should just leave it up to itself. I don't think that we should expect it as a deus ex machina. But I think that we can invent our way out of a lot of problems and invent our way towards a lot of progress. I'm, I'm not I'm not yet a believer that we have stagnated so badly that that can't happen. And so that's one thing. You know, I, I do think people are getting better. It's hard because we're a lot of things we're talking about here are in this context of Trump. But Trump did not win the popular vote. Yeah. And I I saw a fascinating study, and I hope I don't get this wrong, but that even if you just project forward the demographic changes we expect by 2020, he would not have won the Electoral College in 2020. Uh, It was just too close. Yeah, And just like the the, the slight shift. Now, maybe Trump gets more popular. I'm not saying Trump won't win in 2020. It's a different election. But I think in general, we're getting more inclusive. I think in general, we are... We tend to elect and consider pretty decent people, in, per, per, certainly in American politics. I think that you have to look at China and India and be optimistic about that. You you can't just wipe out that kind of human progress. You know, you you can't just erase it as over there. That's a tremendous story. Um, and look, like a lot of bad things are going on in Europe, but maybe it'll be fine. Yeah, Britain exited the eu but maybe they're not even going to exit the eu (laughs) like this might have just been a weird couple of years yeah so i don't know i mean i i think i'm optimistic because so far in my life i've been given reason to be optimistic i recognize my life has been brief so my 32 years of experience should not be overread but the last couple hundred years for humans have been overall generally good and so i certainly don't think that i have enough data points or enough intellectual firepower to make an argument that that, that that's going to stop. I mean, in general, I think you should imagine that you'll it'll continue on your trend.
1: Did you see the SNL skit with Dave Chappelle right after the elections where it's essentially Dave Chappelle and another black guy with a bunch of white friends watching the election results come in? And as the night progresses on, they're like oh, my God, Trump is winning. This is the worst thing in the world. And, like, they're contrasting it to a history of black suffering behind where Dave Chappelle just, like, looks over. He's like, huh? And, like, it's basically, like, slavery, Jim Crow, civil war, systematic oppression, right? And, like, the divergence between— kind of our thoughts around optimistic optimism and where they come from, right? Yeah. Like we have lived we have lived very blessed lives. There's a riff.
2: I, I wanna say it's Warren Buffett who does this, who who just like explains a lays out a bunch of the catastrophes of the mid-twentieth century and says, if I told you that we'd have World War One and all these deaths, and then World War Two and all you know, and then the unbelievable fucking crazy devastation and the droppings of the nuclear bombs and the Holocaust and all all that came with that, and the the Spanish flu, and he just like names these catastrophes that are, are I think, by most of our contemporary standards, almost unimaginable. And then said, you know, and also told you that over that fifty year period, incomes would go way up, and you know all these other things, life expectancies would actually end up going way up. You know what? We, yeah, like. Terrible things have happened before, and it is not yet clear. I really want to say this because I do think it's important. I have been very dispirited by the decisions Trump has made since being elected. He has shown, in my view, very little evidence that he is taking the presidency with the seriousness um, that that it deserves, just as a person. Um, some of the appointments are, are better than others. but. Overall, I've not I've not thought he's come out as some totally different guy. But that doesn't mean that his election will be some super terrible catastrophe. Mm-hmm. I mean, in in fact, one way I can imagine this playing out is that it he just runs a really incompetent, scandal plagued administration that doesn't get that much done, good or bad. Now it could go a whole other set of ways. But in some ways, you know, you could argue that someone like Nixon who had very dark tendencies but also a lot more skill and discipline in terms of how he approached the political system, was a more dangerous player and, and we as a country made it through that. But who knows? Maybe he'll be great. Maybe he'll make America great again. I, would li- I, I genuinely would like to
1: see the guy surprise me. It would be really nice. So I want to follow up on some other podcast conversations that you've had with Cory Booker and last week ta Coates, in which you talk about spirituality and how that kind of shapes your optimism. Wait, not my optimism. How it shapes their optimism. Cory Booker's optimism. Cory Booker's optimism. And for ta Coates, not that much optimism. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about what your spiritual beliefs are and what your practices are and how they shape the way that you see the world. Um, and really weird, you get kind of you know your sense of moral identity and derive that from and how it applies to your work. There's there's a fair amount of hippie in me, um, as you know. Thankfully, than most. <laughs> uh, We're both
2: just sitting here hugging trees right now. But I'm not particularly spiritual in the sense of of other realms. It doesn't mean that I'm I'm not an atheist either. I'm pretty agnostic in the sense of genuinely feeling like I don't know what I don't know. And that my ability to comprehend what is, you know, quote unquote, really going on here is probably very, very limited. <laughs> I would observe that we tend to have a, a spirituality where we just like project us out, but bigger. Mm-hmm. And that seems probably wrong to me, I think. that I, I imagine that They're there's not just a lot bigger. Us <laughs> managing bigger. This. You know, and he, I think you see a very fascinating different version of it sort of taking over the tech world a bit. <laughs> um so you get a lot of these debates now elon musk has been has been one of the big people making this argument that you know well maybe we just live in a computer simulation and and, and, (laughs) yeah and the philosophical case for this is perfectly good it's a strong case case. nick bostrom has done a very good job on this but i i am always struck by how much that feels to me just like a different version of various kinds of monotheism right we've gone from well i'm a Person and I make some stuff, so I bet I'm just made by a bigger person who also makes stuff too. I'm a computer programmer who makes computer programs. <laughs> I bet we're just made by a bigger computer. Pro- like it just seems like there's a poverty of imagination there. Like maybe something very different is happening. Like <laughs> I, I think that I think that we might want to so this widen, is not just a simulation. <laughs> widen the aperture a bit. Uh, I have not myself taken DMT, but I'm told by people who have. That you, you, you get that it could go real weird. Like maybe there's just more that we need to be thinking about here. Um so that is so my spiritual beliefs are I don't really know. Um I I don't have real faith, uh, but you know, I, I do a lot of meditation. I'm I actually really appreciate a lot of spiritual traditions and spend a lot of time trying to think about how to live a moral life. Spent a lot time trying to think about is Vox a moral institution? Is this thing I'm devoting myself to doing good in the world? Um, if it's not really, that it's not worth it, it's too hard. <laughs> you know, in terms of where my own moral identity comes from, I am in and emerge from the Jewish tradition, a, a fairly secular Jewish tradition, but a Jewish tradition, a tradition that has a, a deep well of social justice in it. My parents, I think, are quite moral people and, and imbued me with that. I I think... Been considerate about these questions, and am certainly in recent years, very affected and influenced by effective altruism. Actually, I actually want to give Dylan Matthews uh, and and also actually Annie, my wife, a shout out here. Both of whom have shamed me into being a better person around things like animal suffering. Dylan recently gave his kidney to a stranger, and that is a it's height incredible. I have not yet reached. So you know, I I try to think about this stuff and try to not be sparing on myself about it. I think there are a lot of ways in which I'm not a, a very good person, but You know, I've been blessed to have around me people with very strong moral cores and have learned a lot from them. I mean, I've also friends like you who devote themselves to trying to fix the worst crises on the face of the planet. So, when that is a context in which you operate, just trying to be sort of
1: borderline decent (laughs) doesn't feel like it is that high of a bar to clear. Has meditation as a practice? beyond i think grounding you making you calmer in the ways that folks talk about meditation I don't actually think it makes me much calmer it doesn't make you calm why is, are you doing it <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually a, a thing so when i started doing meditation meditation did, stresses as we out I,
2: no it doesn't it's great actually it's become really important to my life but when i started doing it i did it in that kind of type a way make myself calmer like calm down like manage your stress the <laughs> best way to
1: calm yourself down <laughs> like sit Getting there anxious about get better at meditation
0: down.
2: And over time doing, I mean, and it does have a little bit of a calming effect, but it didn't, I think, in a broad way really change my stress level. What it did do was allow me to see what was going on in me and what I was really stressed out about with a lot more clarity. Mindfulness, I've come to recognize, is different than what I thought it was. It's actually being aware of what's going on in your mind. It isn't necessarily being calmer. Mm -hmm. It's not a sedative. And so, you know, I meditate pretty much every morning. And what I'm just sort of doing there is trying to watch what is happening in my brain, which is much – the thing you get an appreciation for in meditation is there's more happening there than you thought. <laughs> I think before I started meditating, the way I would have described it is I am thinking about X. And after you meditate for a while, you realize my brain is thinking about X. And I'm just sort of along for the ride all the time. Uh, I don't even really want to be. And so that's helped me, I think, just get oftentimes a better sense of, well, what's going on? Like, what am I really worried about? And and so I can try to address that or things that are just burbling around in my subconscious, even, even down to this very prosaic level, like a little like, you have not emailed this person back. And it seems silly, but- Oh, like I'm sitting here quietly in a moment where I realize I'm actually worried about that. I'm feeling a quiet level of guilt, mm-hmm. but it's drowned out by the cacophony. So I'll, I'll go do that. And this is a practice I'm very interested in deepening. I'm, I'm signed up for a five-day silent meditation retreat. Bunch of the people on the show have talked about that. Andrew Sullivan, if you want to go back and check out that episode, tells a very interesting story of his time on a on a seven-day, I think it was, meditation retreat. But this is something that I would like to try to live a more always a more considered life and be able to hear my own inner voice a little bit more so this is something that's been really good for me but it's been good for me in a different
1: way than I initially anticipated you've got to let everybody know when you go on the silent meditation retreat we'll watch what happens before <laughs> and after on yeah maybe Vox. my questions would get less long <laughs> come
2: back um hi this is the Ezra Klein show here's my guest
1: And happy holidays, (laughs) and we're out again. All right, we're going to wrap this up, but I'm going to wrap it up with uh, some of the questions that I think you give to guests, but that oftentimes Uh, don't come back your way. (laughs) So what are the three books that you'd recommend or that have changed the way you think that you think everybody should be reading over these uh, next few days and weeks? Uh,
2: so I've talked about this in other podcasts. The book that got me into politics or, or that I credit the actual first political book I read, interestingly, not maybe not that interestingly, was Jack Germond's Fat Man in a Middle Seat, which is a, a memoir of a political reporter. I'm not really sure how I got my hands on that. But the book that I sort of think about is getting me into politics, into political journalism is an extraordinary book called What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. It is a a tome. It's like an 1100 page tome on the 1988 election. It is amazing. It is the most amazingly written book. He was a leader in new journalism. um, So it's written with very novelistic techniques. And it's just an extraordinary study of the characters of that election. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Another book I would recommend that certainly I have been, I have read and has influenced me. I mean, I've, I've mentioned on this podcast something that I've become more personally passionate about is Animal Welfare and Jonathan Safran Foer's book, Eating Animals. Interesting, Really mm-hmm. good it's a book. Great book. And it's a book that I think talks through these issues in a way that he's just a great writer, but also talks through these issues in a way that is pretty appealing and, and is a good way to think about this stuff. And I, I found it when I read it. I read it after I'd actually made some of these changes, but- It was a much more careful effort on this question than than I had been exposed to before then. And so if these are, are issues that you're interested in or just want to think about, I would read that. And again, it's not to say I really want to be careful about one thing. I think a really bad thing that has happened is there's this discourse where it's like either you're a vegetarian or even better, you're a vegan or you're an asshole. And that is really a bad... I think that's been really bad for this. I think we should be much more consequentialist about it. It matters much more that you cut meat intake by 80% or move from chicken and fish to beef than it does that you try and fail to become a vegetarian, Yeah. right? So the thing that I try to urge for folks that, that I do feel comfortable being on my soapbox saying is to think about eating as an ethical act, uh, an act with ethical implications, and to just be aware of it. Don't go all the way to one side in, in something you can't sustain. That's worse. And I spent a long time ping-ponging back from vegetarianism to failing at vegetarianism so then I just like ate everything again and the way it stuck for me was that you know I went to vegetarianism but with, first with a lot of exceptions I could eat meat when I traveled I could eat meat if I wasn't changing the overall incidence of you know how you know if somebody's if I was eating off of somebody else's plate it was fine you know I had a mm-hmm. bunch of things like that so it was pretty easy and and so I had cut my intake by 90 or 95 percent but I wasn't failing as much. And so I wasn't like breaking that identity and then going all the way back. And then slowly I became more strict as I kind of lost my taste for different things. And, and even now I occasionally fail. But because I've built a, an idea of this where that isn't me no longer being a vegan or no longer being, you know, whatever it is that I am, those failures are just like, okay, like, well, you know, do, do a good job tomorrow.
1: So that that's a book I would recommend. it's ah it's interesting so I recently became a vegetarian in part because of conversations we've had. But I remember at the beginning of it, I was like, "Wow, I am leading the less delicious life." And yeah. then and, and I still kind of think that, but I think that's correct over time. It's interesting how thinking of each of these actions being more ethical kind of imbues just eating with something different. So like I have like slipped and had meat. And now the way that I actually think about that is a lot less tasty and a lot less delicious because it has that ethical dimension. And, like, listen, like, I'm totally with you. Any progress that folks can make towards that is absolutely relevant. But it's also interesting to see how just thinking about eating as an ethical act really really can fundamentally change some of your underlying priors about what, what things taste like and how you're actually enjoying them. So I am mostly vegan
2: now. And being vegan is way less delicious. Like there is no fucking two ways about it. Like cheese is great. Dairy is good. Like there's all kinds of things that you're missing out on here. But something I would say that you really can do, that you can do to align your ideas with animal suffering is eat less chicken, eat more beef. Beef. Both, I believe, objectively is a better tasting, more versatile meat. Uh, chicken is usually gross the way it is prepared. And also it is, you know, you're killing fewer animals. Uh, the final the final book I'll recommend, and it's, it's not, you know, one of the foundational books in my life, but it's a book I'm reading now and I'm taking a lot from, is called Deep Work. It's by a guy named Cal Newport. He's actually a professor over at Georgetown, I think. There have been a lot of, I think, sort of screedy books about the ways digital distractions are impacting our work, impacting what we do, maybe making us more distractible. This is the first book I've seen on this that is really, I think, thoughtful, measured based on pretty good evidence and worth reading to think about work in your own life. I I actually think that I really do believe that a lot of what Silicon Valley is very good at doing is creating addictive habit forming products. And I think that the overall effect of a lot of them on us is negative. I think the overall effect of a lot of them on us is negative for our happiness and also negative for our productivity. I think that we have a lot of things where we feel we constantly need to be checking and we would be way better off not checking. And this is not something that I have figured out. I struggle with it a lot. But this is a book that I think is really thoughtful in its framework and pretty realistic in its approach to the issues. And, and I think people could get a lot out of it. Have you
1: changed anything you do as a result of this?
2: Not yet, because I just finished it pretty recently. Or actually, let me be honest, instead of lying, I am just finishing it.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> page seven, uh, page it's going to be great.
2: <laughs> excellent introduction. One thing that I think I'm going to be trying to do is changing my schedule such that I, to the extent possible, never schedule anything before noon. So I can spend, I tend to get up at six and and work pretty much as soon as I get up. And spend as much of the morning time as I can in a place of much less distraction and try to give those like bigger blocks. And then after that, really stack up my meetings and distractions and emails and whatever. Everything's done after 11 a.m. Right. (laughs) It all goes down.
1: That's the hope. Yeah. Okay. What is one thing that you believe that nobody else believes or everybody disagrees with? Um, I think a lot of people disagree with. I believe the
2: American system of government is fundamentally pretty poor. (laughs) This is something that within a certain segment of academic literature. I was about to say, I'm as a political wonderful.
1: scientist, the only presidential system that has remained. Uh... Right. Yeah. But most people, I think, don't know this. But I
2: always, think, I always tell people America every so often invades countries and rebuilds their governments. So we did it with Germany and we did it with Japan and Iraq and Afghanistan. And the thing we never, ever do is give them our form of government. Like we never go in and say, you know, it would work out great for you. The thing we do. And the reason we don't is that. We have a system of government with um, democratically, with independent, democratically elected branches that have simultaneously different sources of democratic legitimacy and no way to resolve a conflict. So when Barack Obama says he is representing the will of the people and we should do X, and Mitch McConnell says he is representing the will of the people and we should not do X, they are both correct. <laughs> and there is no way to resolve the dispute. And we have all these crazy, archaic things like the Electoral College that just do not serve anything like the purpose they were intended to serve. But for instance, we have now had in, what is it, five elections, two of them decided by the Electoral College. For a country that I think tends to think of itself as democratic, that's fucked up. And if you think that the way settlement is happening (laughs) in this country, if you think about the way the political geography is going, that that is going to become more likely going forward, a, a world in which we are routinely having the Electoral College overturn the popular will. Is that really what we want? So I think there's a lot in the American government that's a bit of a powder keg right now. And as we've developed much more bitterly divided parties, the fundamental instability of a system where we elect people and they do not have the power to govern and there is no way to resolve the interbranch disputes is pretty dangerous. So I think that we, my, my colleague Matt Iglesias thinks we're headed for a constitutional collapse. I just think we're headed for a very long period of pretty bad governance with occasional crises. But I think this is a bigger source of structural risk. Then people give it credit for and it and it definitely worries me. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> um, what is on the list? Anything. It's a superpower. It can literally be anything. <laughs> I think telekinesis would be handy. <laughs> I, th- I think it's really annoying to get up and turn off lights and stuff. And I just think it would be cool, I mean, really strong telekinesis, to be able to stand in front of things and just move them by flicking your hand around. That would be pretty cool. So I think that would be good. I will say, if I could have just a human power, I really (laughs) regret not knowing another language or being able to play an instrument really well. I recognize these are solvable problems. Yeah, I was about to say, telekinesis, a bit of a heavy lift. (laughs) Time is, yes, if I could have a superpower, I'm going back. The Zach Morris stop time. The, sta- the always, the stop.
1: I, that has always yes. been the word. Right, that's go. my superpower. Stop time. And you have to stop aging when you yes, stop I think time. Yeah, you have the, the right. That's crucial. crucial. Yeah,
2: you need to be able to stop aging. But uh, presumably, you would have stopped the time of your own cells and whatever. So that's what I want because then I could have some time to learn guitar. <laughs> <laughs> New Year's resolutions? Haven't figured them out yet. All right. All right. I, I'd like to. No, I haven't figured them out yet. All right. G- give them to us at the beginning
1: of next year. <laughs> and on that note, this has been Ask Me Anything with Ezra Klein.
2: I'll let him end since it's his show, though. Thank you to Grant Gordon for doing this. Thank you to all of you for sending in questions. And also, I, I will say, I started this podcast in 2016. It has been one of the most satisfying creative projects I have ever done. I've been humbled by your response. I've been so grateful for the people who've come here and shared so much of themselves, with me, with the audience. I cannot thank my producer, AC Valdez, enough. This has been great, it's been a real bright spot for me. So so thank you to all of you who've made it something that is real and successful and people want to come on and, and that I get to keep doing, it's really great.